This morning we are continuing our way through the book of Ephesians, so we have arrived at our fourth sermon. And if you were with us last week, we looked at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, which addresses the vertical relationship between God and man. And we learned in that section how there is a great divide that Jesus had to come and bridge the gap to offer reconciliation between God and man. So the first half of chapter 2 deals with that vertical relationship. Today, the second half of chapter 2, we're going to look at the horizontal relationship. How we as human beings relate to each other. Now specifically in the context of the passage today, that is found in the relationship between Jew and Gentile. But I want you to think with me for a moment about all of the great rivalries that exist between human beings. Let's start in some literature. How many of you have read Romeo and Juliet? The two great families in that story, the Capulets and the Montagues. If you've ever read The Outsiders, the novel, we have The Socials and The Greasers. Historically, you have rivalries between families like the Hatfields and the McCoys. One family from West Virginia, one from Kentucky in the late 1800s that feuded for years and years and years. Locally, we have our own rivalries. H.A. and Providence. Dothan, and I, I guess at one time it was Northview, and now I guess it's Enterprise, but Dothan and Enterprise, wherever you grew up, you had a rival high school. And today we're looking at one of the most challenging rivalries in all of the world, and that was in the ancient world between Jews and Gentiles. Now let me preface it by saying this. There is no more challenging difference between groups of people that exist in our context today that is anything like what we're going to look at today. The differences between Jewish people and Gentiles radically supersedes any type of rivalry that you can think of today. The Jews were strict monotheists. They adhered to a very specific diet. They were circumcised. They had laws pertaining to cleanliness and uncleanliness. The Gentiles worshipped a plethora of gods. They would eat food that was sacrificed to idols. They experienced far more freedom than their Jewish counterparts. And yet, Scripture teaches us that when Jesus was crucified and resurrected and the mission of the church began, both Jews and Gentiles came together to begin accomplishing the mission of proclaiming the gospel throughout the world. The church at this point when Paul is writing is now comprised of both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, but that's really not even the right terminology to use. The phrase is, the body of Christ at this point is full of Christians. The differences between these two bodies have been broken down. Now, I want to give you, historically in Scripture, a little bit of understanding about how the church got to this point. So, I'm going to actually start today by reading yet another passage of Scripture, Acts chapter 11, Verses 1 through 18, if you'll notice here, this is a substitute Bible. Something tragic happened this week. I had to take my Bible off to be rebound. And I was told that I would not get it back for six to eight weeks. 
So I'm, it's like a batter at the plate with blisters on his hands. That's what I feel like today. Or a basketball player playing with a knee on his brace. I don't have my regular Bible. So mentally, I'm already off. So just bear with me today. I'm going to do the best I can. All right. Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. I'm going to read it quickly, but I want to show you how the church got to this point, beginning in verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered into my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction." These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now, historically, that is how Peter and the brothers in Jerusalem realized that now the church of Jesus Christ is not just for Jewish people. It is for all people that repent of their sin and come to faith in Christ. So remember that Paul is writing in Ephesus to a predominantly Gentile audience. So as we unpack this passage today, we're going to be talking a lot about the relationships between Gentiles and Jews. We're going to start, number one, by looking at the divide between Jew and Gentile. And number two, how that was removed by the blood of Christ. And then number three, which creates a unified community of people. So number one, the divide between Jew and Gentile, which is removed by the blood of Jesus Christ, which then creates a unified community of people. Number one, the divide between Jew and Gentile. In verse 11, the very first verse you see there is therefore. Now I learned in school, and it's very cheesy, but it's always stuck with me. When you see a therefore in Scripture... You need to figure out what it's there for, okay? 
which means anytime you see Paul, Peter, James, Jude, any of them using a therefore in their letters, that means you need to go back up and figure out why it's there. It's pointing back to what we talked about last week. Therefore, because the vertical relationship between man and God has now been reconciled through Christ, it's also possible that the horizontal relationship between Jew and Gentile, Republican, Democrat, African American, Caucasian, whatever difference you want to put in there, it's also now been removed because of what Christ has done on the cross. The vertical relationship being healed allows the horizontal relationship between us to be healed. But first, Paul begins this passage by reminding the Gentiles what life was like prior to faith in Christ. Now, I don't want to get into too much of the scientific or the medical understanding of circumcision. I'll leave that for you to go ask the doctors after church today. But I do want to set up for you historically, once again, how it came to be that the Jewish people were circumcised and the Gentiles were not. So in order to do that, I have to go all the way back into the book of Genesis chapter 17. You don't have to turn there. We're going to put it on the screen. But in Genesis chapter 17, I want you to see how circumcision ended up becoming something that really, really mattered. Beginning in verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Now jump down to verse 9. And God said to Abraham, as for you, You shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with you with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And you never thought you would hear the word circumcision used so many times in a sermon. But yet, in fact, it is biblical. And it is biblical for the people of God, the Israelites. It is how God set apart the Jewish people from every other nation in the world at that time. The Israelites were the only nation that were circumcised. That is how God chose physically to set them apart from their Gentile brothers and sisters. In God's wisdom and in his sovereignty, he deemed that that is the way his chosen people would be set apart under the old covenant. The circumcised or Jewish people viewed the Gentiles or the uncircumcised people differently. In the same way, the Gentiles looked at the Jews who were circumcised and viewed them differently as well. So we have this great little description from a 
Jewish writer in the early centuries by the name of Philo. Here's what he said. Circumcision was an object of ridicule among many people. So it's not like by the time we get into the days of Jesus that circumcision was always a badge of honor that the Jewish people wore. Sometimes it wasn't. In fact, we have other sources from the first and second century that tell us some Jews actually sought to have their circumcision hidden by cosmetic surgeries. So by the time you get into the time in which Paul is writing, in which Jesus lived, it was not always viewed as this badge of honor. But nevertheless, it was the way that God set apart his chosen people under the old covenant. But the physical sign of circumcision was not the only difference between Jews and Gentiles. And Paul unpacks what some of those differences are. Five specific ways in verse 12 that they were different from their Jewish counterparts. If you want to circle them or underline them, we're going to go through every one of them. Number one, they were separated from Christ. This was true of Jewish people and non-Jewish people if they were not Christians. But Gentiles did not have the national hope of the Messiah that the Jewish people anticipated. This hope for his coming is peppered throughout the Old Testament scriptures and the Old Testament writings. But those writings and prophets were predominantly for the Israelites, Predominantly for the Jewish people. So Gentiles were separated from the national hope of the Messiah coming. They were also alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, Paul tells us. The people of God received a status that the rest of the world did not receive. They were his chosen people. Have you ever been on the outside looking in in any context before? Do you know how uncomfortable that is? to be the one on the outside looking in. This is the way the Gentiles felt in relation to the Jewish people. The Jews were citizens and the Gentiles were aliens. Number three, Paul says, strangers to the covenants of promise. God promised the Israelites in the Old Testament three things, land, seed, and blessing. The land is manifested in the promised land. The seed is manifested when God tells David, through your line, the Messiah will come. And then the blessings come in the form of a new covenant that Jeremiah and Ezekiel prophesy about, where the covenant will no longer be an external sign, it will be written on their hearts. These promises, by the way, were not given to the Gentiles. The promise of land, seed, and blessing was exclusively for the Israelites. Number four, Paul also tells them, they had no hope. Now think about it. If you have no land, if you have no seed, if you have no blessing, then yes, you have no hope. That is how the Gentiles lived their lives under the old covenant. One commentator said, because the Gentiles did not have Israel's privilege of God's revelation, they had nothing to look forward to. They had no expectation that God would work in their lives. They had no knowledge of salvation that would include a future resurrection and eternal life. They had no idea of future messianic deliverance and blessings. This is the lot that the Gentiles had been given. And then number five, Paul says, they were without God in the world. 
those five characteristics that Paul reminds his Gentile audience in this passage about. Paul elaborately reminds these Gentiles that all of these conditions applied to you before you were in Christ. These same conditions that applied to the Gentiles prior to conversion still apply to all people that are not in Christ today. I could review all five of those phrases and this would describe anybody who is not in Christ. They are separated from Christ because of their sin. They are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They are strangers to the new covenant. They have no hope and they are without God in the world. This describes anyone who is not in Christ or anyone who was at one time not in Christ. Paul is expanding our understanding of what it means to be a Gentile. It is not just that you're not a Jew. It is now anyone who has not repented of their sin and believed in the finished work of Christ. All that refuse to do that are described by all five phrases that Paul uses in that passage. And if you're in Christ today, I want you to look at those five phrases and fall on your knees in thanksgiving that God has saved you. He has reconciled you to God. You are no longer a stranger. You are no longer without hope. You are no longer cut off from the new covenant. When you repented of sin and believed in faith in Jesus Christ, you entered into the family of God. So don't read that passage and think this is only talking about the Gentiles No, no, no. This describes every single one of us who was at one time not converted. And it is only because of what Christ has done in us that we can now view those five descriptions and give thanks to God for what he did in our lives. So number one, that's the divide. That's the difference between Jews and Gentiles. Number two, how has it been removed? It has been removed by the blood of Christ. I want you to notice that phrase in verse 13, but now. It reminds us of the very same phrase we saw earlier in that chapter in verse 4. When verse 4 says, but God, being rich in mercy, and it goes on to keeps going. Here in verse 13, we see but now. Paul is again indicating a change of direction. Verse 13 says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Yes, at one time, Gentiles were far off. But God, in his divine wisdom and in his sovereignty, knew that through his son, these Gentiles could be brought into the family of God. I want you to look at the verb, have been brought near. It's time for a grammar lesson. Passive verb. That's important. Paul is saying, you have been brought near. In other words, somebody else was involved in that action and happening to you. It does not say, we brought the the blood of Christ near. It says, we have been brought near. You didn't go searching, brothers and sisters, for the blood of Christ. Christ sought you out. 
He found you, and you responded by repentance and faith. Salvation is a gift from God. We do not bestow the gift of ourselves to God. God bestowed the gift of salvation to us. The separation between Jew and Gentile wasn't just a spiritual separation, though. Did you know in first century life, there were actually physical separation between Jew and Gentile? There's an early Jewish historian who pretty much gives us almost everything we need to know surrounding the biblical evidence by the name of Josephus. He's one of the main sources that you can go to to learn about what life was like if you want to look at another source besides the Bible. And in his writings, he talks about a literal four and a half foot wall that separated in the temple complex the court of the Jews from the court of the Gentiles. Now, we've been talking about how there were all these massive spiritual differences between Jew and Gentile, but there was also actually parameters put in place to separate these two groups of people physically. Gentiles were only allowed to get so close to the temple. There was a wall set up dividing the Jews from the Gentiles in the temple complex. Josephus even tells us that there were inscriptions written in Latin and Greek that said to violate that rule, to cross over that wall, could be punishable by death. But that's not the dividing wall that Paul's talking about here. The dividing wall that Paul is talking about here, what truly separates Jews and Gentiles more than anything else was the Mosaic law. One commentator says the Jewish law was both a partition that separated Jews from Gentiles and a fence that enclosed the Jewish people. Now, I know there's some confusion here because Paul says here that Jesus came to abolish the law with its commandments and ordinances. And if you know your Bible well, you know that elsewhere Jesus said something in Matthew 5 when he said, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. So is Paul contradicting what Jesus is saying here? The answer obviously is no. Now, you're smart people. When you flip open a dictionary and you look up the definition of a word, are there not sometimes four, five, even six meanings of words? The abolish that Paul is talking about here is not to obliterate or to remove. What he means by abolish here is to render inoperative or to nullify. Paul is not teaching Anything that went against what Jesus taught in his most famous sermon in Matthew 5 through 7. Jesus' death, though, did render ineffective or inoperative the Mosaic law, which is what separate the Jewish people from their Gentile counterparts. That wall, that dividing wall of hostility, has been torn down in Christ. So now, Paul says, we have one new man in place of the two now exists. So it's no longer Jew or Gentile. It's really not even Jewish Christian and Gentile Christian. It's simply all of those that are in Christ. When Jesus 
bore the penalty for our sin and the wrath of God was poured out on him rather than us, all divisions between men, gone. Notice the word in verse 14, verse 16, and verse 18, both. It's not just that the Gentiles needed to be preached to. It was that the Jewish people did as well. Both those who were far off, Gentiles, and those who were near, Jews, needed the gospel. What Paul is not teaching here is that the Jewish people were automatically in. Even the Jewish people had to be converted to faith in Christ. When Paul goes throughout all of his missionary journeys, where did he always go first when he entered into a new town? He went into the synagogues. Why did he do that? To proclaim the gospel to the Jewish people in those communities. They needed to be converted just like their Gentile counterparts. The Jewish people might have been the people of God under the old covenant, but in the new covenant, it's the death of Christ and his resurrection that counts, not the Mosaic law. Jesus makes it possible for both Jew and Gentile to have access to the Father through the Spirit. You'll notice in verse 18, All three persons of the Trinity are mentioned in that verse. Jesus brings us from death to life through his death and resurrection. His spirit resides in us and all in Christ now have access to God the Father. All members of the Trinity, all persons of the Trinity working together ultimately for the glory of God. If you are not in Christ today, what Paul is challenging you in this passage to understand is that there is a great chasm that exists between you and God. And that dividing wall of hostility, that separation that exists between humanity and God can only be torn down by believing in Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross, repenting of sin, and trusting that the sacrifice that Christ made reconciles you to God. And when that happens, number three, it creates a unified community of people. Now Paul now begins talking again to his Gentile audience. No longer, he says, are they strangers or aliens. A stranger being someone who is simply in a foreign land. An alien, though, is someone who lives in a place for an extended period of time that is not their home. So let's think about this. A stranger would simply be somebody that you invite to come and stay with you in Dothan for a weekend, some friends that come from out of town. But an alien would be more like somebody who was living in Dothan for an extended period of time, perhaps somebody that was in school somebody that was training for some job. It is not their home, but they're here longer than just a weekend stay. Those descriptions, Paul says, no longer describe Gentiles because of the blood of Christ. Now, the Gentiles are included with the saints as members of the household of God throughout time. The foundation of this dwelling place comes through, we're told, the apostles and prophets with Jesus as the cornerstone. Now, prophet here 
is not referring to Old Testament prophets, but those with the gift of prophecy that encouraged and spoke specific words to people at given times. The apostles, those that were tasked with carrying on the message of the gospel after Jesus ascended into heaven. So you think of people like Paul and Barnabas and Timothy, but ultimately these apostles and prophets serve under the cornerstone that is Jesus. It all rises and falls with him. If apostles and prophets tried to build the foundation without Christ as the cornerstone, it would have all come crumbling down. In verses 21 and 22, Paul kind of pivots and he uses the temple structure as an illustration. But he's not talking about the physical temple at this point that the Jews worshiped in. He means a spiritual temple. And this spiritual temple is comprised of all sorts of stones. Those stones are both Jewish and Gentile Christians. Verse 21 says that the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So Jew and Gentile are this holy temple, and God dwells in that temple. Think of the ramifications of what Paul is teaching here. It means at the minimum three things. Number one, the individual conduct of each stone in the temple matters. Our personal holiness in this temple matters. What we do with our minds, with our bodies, how we conduct ourselves as stones in this temple matters. Paul says elsewhere, remember that your, that your body is a what? A temple of the Holy Spirit. So you are to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of that. So you repent of sin You strive to live a life of holiness. But number two, it's also one temple being built. So the stones have to figure out a way to be unified across racial, ethnic, socioeconomic, political lines. Christians do not all think alike, look alike, and talk alike. We have to find a way to understand that all of these different stones that comprise the temple that our God dwells in are not all the same. And then number three, that means collectively, our body, specifically First Baptist Dothan, is also included in this dwelling place for God as a local manifestation of the church. So we have to ask ourselves individually the same questions that we would ask of anybody else outside of this room. Are we growing in holiness? Our personal holiness, every single person's individual holiness affects the corporate holiness of this body. Do not think that you can separate your personal holiness out there from the corporate holiness of this body. You cannot. It affects the corporate gathering. That's why we repent of our sin. That's why we study God's word every day. We get on our knees and ask him to convict us of our sin and to show us where we have fallen short, not just for ourselves, but for this entire body. 
And does our church, number two, reflect the various types of stones that comprise the temple where God dwells? Ethnic, socioeconomic, political. Brothers and sisters, there is no doubt that it would be way easier to have a church that was comprised of people that looked like us and talked like us and voted the same way as us, it might be easier, but guess what? It's not biblical. It doesn't matter what's easier. It matters what's biblical. And so we, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we have to be intentional in constructing this temple in a way that it can be comprised of people from various backgrounds of all sorts. And if we believe that it's possible for the blood of Christ to break down the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, then we can certainly believe that God can break down any other type of artificial barrier that we would put between us and other believers in Christ. If God loved us enough to send Jesus so that we can be reconciled to him. Surely, we can learn through the power of the Spirit to love one another enough despite our differences, whatever kind they might be. The Jew-Gentile divide, as I said earlier, in my opinion, is far more challenging than any other type of difference that we might encounter between our brothers and sisters in Christ today. If they could do this in the first century AD, we can do this in the 21st century. We can learn to be with people that don't always think the same way that we do, that might not dress the way that we do, that might not vote the same way that we do. And you know why we can do that? Because we all have the Spirit of Christ in our hearts. And there is a connection between brothers and sisters in Christ that you cannot get in any other aspect of your life. There is a connection there. That is why every single week I can walk up to a 90-year-old or 95-year-old brother or sister in this congregation and instantly have a connection with them because the same spirit that resides in them is the same spirit that resides in me. So shame on us when we divide ourselves into specific demographics of age or race or voting block or whatever other Description you want to put in there. The Spirit of Christ unites His church. We can do this because it's not up to us. The Spirit of Christ is the one who unites followers of Christ together. I think this is illustrated as I close so well in the Bible between Paul and a brother in Christ by the name of Titus. And here's what I want to read, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 6. This is one of Paul's other letters. He says this, But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Now you might be looking and thinking, what's the big deal? It's a huge deal. If a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin, who was zealous to stamp out any followers of Jesus... That would be Paul. And a Gentile convert by the name of Titus 
can become dear friends and do ministry together, knowing that this huge ethnic divide existed between them, then certainly we as brothers and sisters in Christ can do the same with others. Circumcised, uncircumcised, Jew, Gentile, Republican, Democrat, Independent, whatever other party you want to put in the blank. If we are in Christ, we can come together. And when we don't, the witness of the church is damaged. So let's be on the front lines following the advice that Paul gives the Gentiles and the Jews in this passage. The dividing wall of hostility has been broken down by the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We can be united as one. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the boldness of Paul and how he convicts us and challenges us. God, if if Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians in the first century can come together as one, we can certainly do the same. So God, help us to reflect in our own lives. Do we have any superficial divisions that we have created in our minds and hearts that prevent us from having fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ? And if we do, God, would you show us what those are? That we could be convicted of it and confess our sin? God, I could not imagine being at a church where everyone was 36 years old just like me. I desire and want brothers and sisters in Christ of all ages, of all ethnicities, who can pour into my life, encourage me, rebuke me, stand beside me, pray with me, because that's what heaven is going to be like. So God, may we as your church be intentional in breaking down any wall of hostility that might exist between us and other brothers and sisters in Christ. And as we sing here in just a moment, may we sing as loud as we possibly can for your glory in all of the earth, for all of the nations, so that every tongue, tribe, nation, and people can know you. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.